Folks, I want to say good night and thank you for our special guest. We have two. We have James, James Johnson. James Johnson. And Aunt Rosie Herrera. You got it. That's Jeff's aunt who chimed in on occasion. So good night and see y'all later. Yeah. Bye. Take care. Bye. Good evening, people, and welcome aboard the night train with Henry and Jeff. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a cocktail and conversation as we delve into the supernatural and beyond. Welcome aboard the night train. We have some special guests with us tonight. But first, let's talk about this cocktail that Paige put together. It's called the Bigfoot. The Bigfoot. Yeah, Bigfoot. Cheers, Bigfoot. And Bigfoot drink. It's very simple. It's a, a coffee moonshine. Oh. Amaretto. Uh, some Irish cream, vodka, and some chocolate syrup. And it is delightful. It's a dessert drink. It's a dessert drink. And where the coffee moonshine come from? Because that's one of our. That came from Pennsylvania. Yeah. A small batch. It's kind of a, a specialty when, when they make it, don't they? Because. Mm -hmm got to get there and get it while you can it's really good though it yeah. is it's kind of kalua ish but not quite as sweet yeah so it's good. well it's moonshine that's true well tonight folks we have we are going to be discussing bigfoot bigfoot sasquatch <coughs> and apparently there's different um names that you know, where the uh, the Bigfoot creature uh, shows up at. Because uh, each, I guess, it almost seems like each town or uh, county has a different name for their special kind of Bigfoot. But basically, it's the same thing. And uh, I don't know if uh, James knows that. But now, James, go ahead and introduce yourself so we can uh, know your specialty in all this and uh, your experiences. Yeah, um, well, I'm James Johnson. I'm a retired teacher. I retired at 21. And uh, Bigfoot has always been really an interest in mine. And like I said, even before the computer age, you had to do a lot of research through books, periodicals. And I did a lot of research uh, more on the academic side than field research. But there's a lot of people who do the field research now as well. And one thing the computer has done that's really helped is connect both those together. We've got more people willing to come out and report and talk about it. And so I just started collecting a lot of notes, information, and uh, watching a lot of uh, videos and uh, shows and collecting as much information from different sources. And that's really how I've, I've always been fascinated with you know, cryptozoology. And Bigfoot, of course, falls right into that category, and is probably the most well-known cryptid. He's not the only one in North America, but he is certainly probably the most well-known in North America. Right, and um, as far as your experiences with one, have you or your family or friends had any experiences that you've, you've taken notice? Um, the only thing, personally, I've never seen one, but... Uh, I did have an event near my home in 04 that I had some questioning on. 
but I've had uh, people I bumped into uh, in 2012. I went down to Louisiana, and I was down through that area for partial business, also uh, meet uh, some individuals there. And they were along what's called the Sabine River. And the Sabine River, just for those that don't know, is about a 360-mile river that flows through Texas and Louisiana. Yeah, it's on the border, And right? Sabine is Spanish for cypress. Huh. It's just a huge amount of cypress trees all along that river. And they call it the Sabine thing. And they had heard a tremendous amount of howls coming down off that river. And this was not something that was known to most people or could be recognized easily from an auditory point of view. So that's been well known and documented in that area that uh, a lot of people call it the Sabine thing, and it's gotten that nickname over the years. And now with that noise, can you have they described that noise? Because we've uh, we've been listening to or following a whole bunch of uh, different... Um, podcast and a whole bunch of different um you know shows on netflix and it seems like they have kind of like a same kind of uh basic uh sound to them but not really yeah so could you tell us what what the sounds that you know of yeah the one coming from the sabine tends sometimes is described as a long howl right uh, you know, long in duration and at a much higher level. Um, we've had some people report whistling coming from the woods. Okay. Um, sometimes they will mimic owl calls because, right. again, they are a form of predator. And the other one that's most interesting that we get some reports on is sometimes crying babies, like the sound of an imitation of a crying baby. Yeah, I heard that. And I always found oh. that to be very interesting. Do you think that's like to to draw the the uh, prey in, or do you think it's just like a baby uh, or a small Bigfoot? It could be either one. That's a good question because we do know there have been reports of females carrying smaller young, and you'll see footprints of a young one and say a mid-size footprint, and then all of a sudden the young one's footprints disappear, which would indicate the mother picking the child up. Right. Um, so that's quite a possibility. It's also possibility that it's drawing, trying to draw someone into the woods. These creatures can be predatory. They can be very territorial. So, you know, you, you deal with a situation that's still a wild animal at the end of the day, and it can have aggressive tendencies if you invade its territory. Ah, so, yeah, that's kind of typical of most, um, you know, I guess, primates. primates. I mean, even humans. And we're the highest mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. But now, have you have you known anyone that had um, uh, footprints or fur or any, or any kind of evidence? Uh, well, not myself, but I have seen some of them um, through the computer. I did get to see some reproduction prints when I was down in Louisiana that they had from uh, what they call was Falk, Arkansas. And uh, that's the area that some of the the old film Legend of Boggy Creek was uh-huh. done. These were reproductions, but they were huge. Typically, the footprints of these creatures, they tend to be bipedal, walking upright on two legs. They can run anywhere from, say, 8 inches to over 22 inches, 7 to 8 inches wide. 
and width and the imprint yes, <laughs> that they produce can be over an inch to an inch and a half in the ground depending on their weight. So you're talking about a very heavy animal, muscular in weight, uh, where an average man in a boot weighted down can't even get, you know, a half inch. These creatures are pushing down into the ground that much. We do know that they also have what's called a mid-tarsal ridge, and that means that the middle of their foot will flex, where our foot doesn't. We tend to go heel down toe. Right. They're going a little bit different, and this gives them uh, the ability to climb and move a lot faster than we do. This is why a lot of witnesses who see them going up the hill said, you know, they covered the hill so much faster. Well, the reason is because of that mid-tarsal break or mid-tarsal ridge. Huh. And it allows the foot to flex and cover more ground much faster. Yeah, and they got that, you know, as tall as they are, they got that stride, too. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, I've had reports almost like a five-foot stride, you know. Wow. And the ones in Alaska tend to have even a long, longer stride, and they're, they're much taller. Probably some of the largest reports come of the tallest being from that region. Uh, the difference in the toe configuration, here on the East Coast, they tend to be smaller, auburn brown, uh, five-toed. You get to Texas, they tend to be very aggressive, three-toed, mm -hmm. smaller build, and would but you, more in hunting in groups. Would you consider and that also? And then you also? get into the Pacific Northwest, they're much larger, wider on the shoulders, and they're also more five-toed, and this is where you see some of the larger prints. And so Alaska the, having some of the largest of them all. So Chris the, or James, James the, the um, so do you think the uh, ones in Texas are probably about the same as one in Louisiana, since they're both kind of like together, the, the the both states? Well, it depends on the toe. I mean, if you look at the forensic evidence being the footprints, the three-toed in Texas are kind of unique. Now, we get a lot of reports out of Texas along old uh, rail lines that aren't being used, uh, logging roads, they often find footprints. Um, you'll see them along riverbeds where there's a wet riverbed where they've been walking. They tend to use the path of least resistance, contrary to what a lot of people, people always think these animals are elusive, that you know they don't want to be seen but these animals will take the path of least resistance yeah uh, of course a rail line is great because it cuts right through the forest um, you know you, you've got rivers that cut through so it's basically areas where they can hunt and they know where prey items will come uh, <laughs> the eastern side of Texas has what's called the big thicket and that's been an area where they've seen a lot of these three-toed varieties uh, in over the years and that's a very popular area for Bigfoot and Bigfoot sightings. Um, do you find um, that those ones in Texas and Louisiana are a little bit more aggressive? Because I know the ones like in the in the uh, Adirondacks and the Pacific Northwest Mount Rainier area are just kind of like, um, well, they're there, but they it doesn't seem like they attack them, but it seems like in Texas and Louisiana, the, they really shake up the people down there. Yeah, they tend to be more aggressive, and, you know, you typically think these creatures can be more territorial down there, and I think they are, and 
there's a lot of reports when people see them too. Everybody always thinks they're just by themselves, but there have been reports in Texas seen in groups of two and three, hmm. like in a river bathing or you know along the river's edge. Yeah. So sometimes they're not actually alone. <laughs> they tend to be smaller in stature and build, but they're still very large animals. But like I said, that they're, they're probably more of a territorial now. Are they hunting? If you get between them and say hunting, deer tends to be their prey typically because of the protein. Uh, then you're dealing with an animal that could see that as a challenge, and you wonder sometimes if these hunters, uh, when they see them, have they wandered in between a hunt, or are they on the territory that these animals typically consider their territory, hunting territory? You have to wonder sometimes because, like I said, it ends in a uh, more of a dangerous response and a lot of people have been walked out where these creatures will parallel them walk them out they've had rocks thrown at them sometimes these are very large rocks that can right. be you know damaging if they hit you right and they've had growls grunts and so again that you know response that you know you kind of wonder if they had wandered into an area where there might have been young They've been doing protective of the young, or they were hunting. So you do have to wonder that sometimes, based on what the witnesses tell us. What about the dogs? What about dogs? So, oh, um, so do they um, also <clears throat> do they talk, uh, attack and I don't know disappear dogs and you know like chickens from some of your research that you've done? Yes, chickens, <clears throat> chicken coops. These creatures have opposable thumbs, so oh. unlocking gates, uh, getting chickens out of pens has been something that they have been seen doing. Uh, and in one case, one man saw one take out of his pen a chicken, and the creature locked the gate back or the little door. <laughs> so oh, wow! So it's, you know, it is you're a, like, okay, this yeah. is definitely something that you don't hear every day. <clears throat> But it would take an animal with opposing thumbs and, you know, uh, intelligence to be able to do that. But they are capable of doing that. We do know that in Australia, the creatures called a yowie, they have been seen killing small dogs and kangaroos. Oh, hmm. really? So these creatures are predatory. Now, they will eat, uh, you know, kill animals. They will eat berries, nuts whatever the opportunity and what the season allows. Right. And that's another reason I think they're seen sometimes along rivers because that's a food source as well as also a good ambush point for deer depending on the time of year. So, exactly. So do they attack humans? <clears throat> I suspect that some humans, we do know that in certain countries, uh, if you go out to, like in Siberia, they're called the Almas. That is one very aggressive group. They have attacked and killed humans, supposed, you know, the reports coming from Siberia, and they're very large in that area, extremely large and very aggressive. Um, so that is one area that we know. Uh, we know that the Yeti, which is, of course, one of the more well-known variations in the Himalayas, is also very aggressive and has attacked at people. And there's been reports of being, you know, people being attacked by them, as well as yaks being killed right in front of them. A yak? So there, there are some areas where we get reports from time to time 
of this intense aggression and you have to wonder if it's due again to their on their territory is it a territorial response or are they protecting young or is it just simply the fact that these creatures have a, a much more aggressive demeanor and they don't want anyone else challenging them or they feel challenged when mankind comes onto their territory that's uh, understandable feeling challenged by us yeah because i mean it's either uh you know do or die if, you know if your area is getting um you know taken over by humans yeah but um so do you know you know the first time in your research that uh the first one has been sighted or do you think that it's just like something that with every, with you know now everybody with their you know a lot of countries with their the the people moving more into the you know the uh the rural areas the rural areas yeah we've got reports that go considerably back i mean we've even had daniel boone reporting a creature he saw when he was alive we've got a tremendous number of indian tribes who have their own name uh you know for it sasquatch being one of the more well-known that means wild man Mm -hmm. wild men we've got buquas and of course there's just all kinds of others if you're in florida they call it the skunk ape uh, in Missouri, they call it the Momo. In Ohio, it's the Grassman, or sometimes uh, Skookum. That's another one. So there's a lot of different names for these creatures, and it goes way, way back. There's even some petroglyphs of what some people consider a, you know, the equivalent of a Bigfoot that we call it today. We tend to use the term Bigfoot and kind of, if you will, take a broad brush and put them all into one category. But the reports over the years have indicated some of the, like for instance in Alaska, some of these creatures have been reported to be 15 feet tall. That's huge. And almost five feet at the shoulders. So you're dealing with creatures that vary in size, weight, and again, the footprints that we find tend to vary. So you're dealing with really a, you know, broad number of types of creatures or subspecies and we're putting them all together when we say Bigfoot. Of course, we all know what you're saying, but there's probably a whole population of these animals living, but they vary in shape and size depending on the region and where, you know, what kind of food source they have. But are they all related? They could be. Um, of course, a lot of the DNA, depending on whose book you do, what reading, they come back. It'll always say inconclusive, or it'll say it was inconclusive. Why? Because it's coming 1% human. Right. So we have had some test results where it did have that human connection. Some people say it's a Neanderthal spinoff. Some say it's a completely different animal. Uh, but I do find the DNA results to be interesting. I'm not so willing to just throw it off as inconclusive, but you know, again, in science, we have to have a body. And of course, without producing a body, then it's, again, very hard to prove. But you have to scratch your head, you know, you look at the evidence, you know, what is this 1% human? You know, how is it there? 
sometimes the scientists can't give you an you know, an answer, but they can just tell you what the results were. Yeah, because they don't really have something to base that uh, that uh, mystery um, part of the Bigfoot of you know it's I don't know DNA or whatever. They don't have anything to really compare it to, so you know they're just like, oh, <laughs> right. So right. I mean, you know, and that's of course an always an issue, and you know. It makes it more difficult sometimes to narrow it down, and then you have to ask, what would the subgroups be? You know, we're seeing again the different type of species, subspecies, if you will, uh, in the different areas of the country. So, like I said, it's not really just one creature, one size fits all. Right. It varies from wherever you are, depending on what part of the country you're in. Oh, very interesting. Now, what about? Um the supernatural part of them of the uh the 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 bigfoot whole genre as far as you know i've heard um you know reports of people would see them and they'd see uh ufos around the area or else they would uh see um you know them here and then all, all, all of a sudden gone you know the next minute yeah, that's a fascinating question because 10 years ago I probably would have said no connection. and But now I'm starting to wonder because so many more reports are coming in from different parts. People will see these, they, sometimes they call them forest lights, right? small spheres of light. Um, I know that Expedition Bigfoot, there's been a bunch of different uh, expeditions that have gotten those, film, those lights on video. Right. And very shortly after, someone will either have a sighting, they'll get a response, um, they'll get a tree knock or a whoop or a howl in some cases, or they'll get a sighting. And so is there a connection between the lights and Bigfoot? And that is a very good question. I don't know if anyone has a definitive answer. I do know that what is interesting, a lot of the indigenous tribes will often tell you when if you see these lights don't follow them uh, because they tend to take you deeper and deeper into the forest right so i found that you know i was many many years ago talking to one of the cherokee and they were like adamant do not follow those lights into the forest and, you know, I found that to be fascinating. I kept seeing that in my research over and over. So many of them, different tribes, would tell their young, teach them when they're very young, don't follow the lights. And I always found that to be fascinating. Yeah, no doubt, because, I mean, you know, it, it almost seems like sometimes them lights could, you know, they're, they're meant to draw people towards where, you know, they... The lights want to be near the uh, the Bigfoot, or, I mean, it's just a thing that a lot of people have seen. And also, there's another thing that gives them away for the typical uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot is the smell. And I, 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 I can only think that maybe it's just because they live in the woods for so long and they eat so much nasty stuff, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, the smell is something that it comes... Some reports you get people who will say they have had a very, like a, between a wet dog, uh, marshy, uh, you know, type of water, 
smell. Yeah. Uh, some people would say it's like a dead animal in marshy water. And then some people say they smell nothing at all. So, it, of course, the direction of the wind, the distance between them and what they're seeing plays a major role. And not always is that a factor, but you do get reports sometimes of people saying they do smell these creatures, but not every time. Uh, I know in Florida, where they call it a skunk ape, the animal is usually, before it's seen, that's the one thing that a lot of the witnesses will talk about, is this just incredible uh, acrid odor that seems to permeate your clothes and the air, uh, and that's always a call tale or you know telling sign that this creature is around because of that that intense odor um some in the upper northwest no odor at all but they you know had reports of the creature so it really depends on location uh you know where they see them and the distance between you and the sighting right oh okay very interesting and um now I'll go ahead coloring for these creatures also is very interesting like the yeti everybody thinks that's a white creature in color but in reality it's an auburn brown hmm. typically that tends to be the the biggest number of reports but we've had some of the ones in Texas being dark black auburn brown occasionally we get a white grayish which we think may be the change of the seasons. They change, or it could be an older, uh, you know, specimen uh, who's gotten age. Because, again, just like as we age, our hair color tends to change. So could they also have that same indicator as, you know, showing age? That's a question, but we've gotten variations on the coloring of these animals. And that's always been a fascinating thing, too, with the reports that I get and collect, the notes I collect and, the inter, you know, looking at the different witness statements. Uh, it tends to vary, and does it vary between season? Because some people will say the hair is hanging. Others will say the hair is thin, more of a thin type. Could it be these creatures have a what we call a winter coat, like certain animals will develop? Right, how they to adopt. protect them more in the winter, yeah. and in the summer, it tends to thin. That's a question that a lot of people are asking now. That makes sense. Like our dogs and cats shed in the summertime. Correct. You're right. Oh, yeah, yep, yep. And then I guess, you know, their appetite depends on what's near them the most, too. They seem like very good hunters. But the thing is, is that um, they're good hunters and they will definitely uh, hunt and kill animals, but the thing that I found kind of interesting is that, you know, there will be humans, too, that will walk around looking for them and, you know, get lost in the woods and see them, and yet they don't kill the people, the human, for food. But they will kill animals for food. Well, yes, but we, we don't really know, <clears throat> in a sense... Have they killed humans? We've had reports, especially in certain areas, like I said, the Siberia, uh, Siberia, uh, Almos, and then you've got the Yeti that has attacked humans. So there are areas where these creatures are very large and tend to be very aggressive. Now, in the Pacific Northwest, they tend to be more curious. They'll come up and look at people through the window, and of course, their height and size, eight, nine feet average or bigger. 
so they can just peer into windows and they're just watching people. Um, we've had some <laughs> who will come up to a home. Now, this is a little scary. There are children who might be, say, infants crying. They'll mm. come up to the window to look in at the infant. Are they coming there for the infant or are they coming there out of curiosity because they hear a baby crying? And it's that maternal instinct kicking in. We really don't know, but you have to wonder and worry. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is still a wild animal, still predatorial. So you have to wonder what are their intentions. But as far as we know, um, do we know if, you know, even around the world that these things actually uh, have evidence of uh, killing a human being? There have been some reports out of Siberia that they have, and there's been a few reports uh, very scant out of Australia with mm -hmm. the Yowie attacking humans. Now, I don't know if all of those ended up in deaths, but I do know that the ones in Siberia, there were some deaths reported due to them. Now, you know, again, looking at credible evidence, you have to take everything with a fine grain of salt, but... The, like I said, certain areas we get more aggression, certain areas we have sightings, but there's not really that much in the way of aggression. If you do get aggression, it's they'll throw rocks, they'll intimidate you until eventually you leave. They mm. will parallel you. In other words, they'll walk you out of their territory. And then once you get to a point, they'll stop. And we know that, in, for instance, in Alaska, that the huge ones have a very unique characteristic. They'll take and de-limb a tree, rip it out of the ground, turn it upside down, and stick it in the ground. Hmm. So you have this line of trees, and this has been documented on videos, books, and so forth, with these root balls sticking up in the air. Hmm. And it's almost like they're forming a line saying, okay, from this point forward, this is my territory. Right, and it's... And you don't enter that territory, it's just kind of like a, I guess you would call it a warning marker. And I find that very interesting. It's, it's one of the few regions, but there have been reports of these in, I think, in British Columbia, Alaska. So you do get reports of that. And is that a territorial marker? Yeah, I don't see letting seems, you know this yeah, is our hunting like territory. It. Don't go in here. Right. And, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, Paige, uh, Paige and I um, were just uh, watching, you know, a, a series this week where uh, they would um, go looking for them and they would find uh, trees bent, not cracked or anything, but just like bent. And also some of them were, uh, they had like, they marked their territory with like, a, you know, three good size uh, thickness of a you know, just trees in a in like a teepee kind of like thing. To kind of like yeah, trees typically typically are interwoven. Yeah, which would again indicate opposing thumbs because a deer, a bear yeah. are not going to be able to do that. Right. And these animals are capable of pulling trees 70, 80 feet long, delimbing them, and position them in such a way they're interlaced. Now. Some of these trees five six inches in diameter so you're talking about a large tree that would be awkward for a man to move right but these creatures move these with pretty much ease and then they you know will interwoven them at the top and 
you know, this is strange. We really don't quite understand what that means, but is it a territorial marker? Is it a warning marker, you know, to stay away? Uh, we really don't know. But right. it's interesting to see that behavior. And it's something that's been seen in the, you know, throughout North America, not just relegated to one state. But uh, it's certainly very fascinating, and it's something that we're still really studying right now. And so, what, with your um, with your knowledge and what you've studied, where do they where where are they most at? Typically, the biggest bulk of sightings tends to come in the I guess Pacific Northwest uh, mountain regions and where you would see swamps, swamp-like or marsh-type regions. Uh, Typically where there's not a large amount of population of humans, uh, the only people that would typically see them would be your hunters, your fly fishermen who are going far into to do stream fishing, um, trappers, uh, (coughs) folks like that. Sometimes you get people who work for like the wildlife forestry or work for some type of logging. Uh, they'll run into them because they're going due to the nature of their work. Um, we've had some landmen who were working on, you know, working on lands far out who have had sightings. But it's typically those regions that you get. Now, they have seen them in the desert, too, but typically that's less common. But uh, typically your mountain areas and your swamps, marshes, stuff like that. So now these things have been around for, you know, since you know, modern man, and modern man has seen these things, you know, way, way, way back when. Why do you think, in your opinion, and what you've studied, why is it that we we just can't, you know, at least find a dead one, or, (laughs) or, you know, or or if they, you know, try to attack someone, they didn't shoot them dead. What would your uh, right. opinion be about that? Well, there have been reports of in Washington State uh, during the Mount St. Helens uh, eruption. There were some that were killed that were seized by the National Forestry. There was one killed by lightning in a storm. That was a, supposedly a female that was taken by the National Forestry. Again, you know, you can't confirm, you can't deny. It's You have no body for evidence one way or another so you know the question is with all these folks that are reporting these creatures certainly uh, and there's even legends in the Pacific Northwest uh, that some of the Indian traps have of these creatures coming down with what we would now call smallpox killing them right and they're being found so you know, certain diseases they're not immune to, and certainly being, you know, flesh and blood, they would have some vulnerability to certain diseases. And you have to wonder, you know, how come we haven't found more of them, you know, dead, laying in the forest, or bones. Right. Now, on the flip side of that, if you think about bears, black bears, you know, the Smoky Mountains has the largest black bear population. And a few years back, I was in uh, the Nantahala Forest, uh, which is right there in the Smoky Mountains near Fontana Dam, or Lake as they call it. And that is a very thick area. 
So there was plenty of black bear signs, but if a black bear died in there, would I be able to actually find the bones? Unless you just happen to stumble onto the carcass or the bones, you could walk by or if you smell it, but you would walk by and you may not be able to see it. So some of these forests are very thick and because they're so remote, could you actually find a body, you know? So you have to wonder, have bodies been recovered, A, and two, if you did have a body, would there be anybody in that remote region to find it? And the answer most likely is not, especially in a swamp. That's gonna pose a whole different type of setting. And you've got predators in there, so how long would a carcass last? You know, so you have to wonder because of temperature and so forth. Oh yeah, and also, um, you know, you gotta figure uh, animals or bugs that, you know, just digest you know, dead bodies of, you know, whatever's dead and... Scavengers. And, yeah. Yeah, the scavengers and the breakdown would be much quicker in certain regions than others. Mm-hmm. Certainly the colder regions would be better, but uh, again, do these, do they, you know, bury their dead? That's a question that some people have asked. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, that's also the yeah. question if they die, do they die in a very deep cave system? Another question that we really don't have an answer to, but you have to wonder. So there's a lot of possibilities, and that could be one of the indicators why we don't have a lot of uh, what you would call an actual body to study from or pull evidence from. So it, you know, it typically when these things are found, it's usually from some group or people who are out in a remote region doing something that's totally non-related. That's how typically you'll find stuff or how, you know, we discover new species. So maybe down the road someone will do that. It certainly would help us in our understanding of them. But until then, we just, we have a lot of conjecture or guessing, but we don't really have an actual body to pull evidence from. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy because with uh, technology the way it is right now, is that we haven't found one yet, but I, I can only be hopeful that someday at some time that we can you know i don't i i i don't want to say you know shoot one dead but you know just find one dead someplace somehow with the technology Mm -hmm. and do you think technology is going to help us to uh you know at least find some physical evidence of uh one of these creatures well in a way it already has thermal technology is improving Steadily, and that has been a game changer in a lot of ways. We've had thermal hits of these creatures moving through in the distance, and of course, with the regular naked eye, you would have never seen them. But with the thermal, it's you know like night and day in some cases. You can actually see uh, actual animals moving through, yeah. and that has made it easier to spot a few of them. So there's been some caught on thermal that you have to wonder, scratch your head. Uh, is it conclusive evidence? No, but is it certainly uh, interesting evidence? Yes. And like I said, a lot of times some of the best evidence or video comes from groups that are not actually out looking per se for cryptids, but they're doing something completely unrelated and someone happens to be looking in the right direction at the right time and that's when they get compelling video. And most likely down the road that may be what we get again more evidence you know there could be another patterson gimlin film out uh 
there or coming that's going to give us that smoking gun, if you will, or, you know, conclusive evidence. But again, you know, it, it's going to probably be someone that's doing something totally unrelated than Bigfoot research. Gotcha. Now, one of my one of my uh, theories is is what why uh, nobody caught one live is that these Bigfoots. I mean, yeah, everyone thinks they're like these. Well, they are these uh, eight foot uh, beings that's hairy and very strong and um, can go here and go there at any time. Um, I just wonder if they were, you know, if they could. There's a I don't know another sense that they have where their 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 sense of of uh you know seeing and hearing and smelling is what helped keep them also alive after all these decades a lot of people feel that their sense of smell is very keen uh typically when animals have a very strong sense of smell uh, they may have a very strong sense of hearing just much like a dog would so if that is the case, then that would give them, a, you know, an alternative to hear us long before we see and hear them. A lot of sightings have, especially from hunters who are sitting up in a tree stand, these creatures are moving through and they don't realize they're being watched. It's mm -hmm. often a lot of times, or someone's going down the road at 40, 50 miles per hour and one of these cross the road. And a lot of road cross, crossing sightings are very common, and it's basically where they're in transition from point A to point B. So, yeah, these creatures are seen from time to time. I do think they have a heightened senses. And some people have said they're, they have red eyes. Some people say they have a yellowish type of eyes. Um, are they good? You know, are these used for night hunting? Uh, it's possible because, you know, we have certain animals. A lot, a lot of the felines have uh, very good type of eyes for hunting, and they typically would be known for, you know, hunting at night. So it's quite possible that they have some advantages. Uh, there's even been talks of infrasound. People getting sick when these creatures are around, nauseous, headaches. Hmm. Uh, that's been documented on several videos. And you have to wonder, you know, because we know the big cats, especially tigers, have infrasound capability. So is that a form of hunting ability they have or possess that they use to take down their prey? That's an excellent question. Yeah, because I've never heard of infrasound before. And uh, Yeah, infrasound sure... has been around and studied. Uh, the big cats use it. Um, a lot of people who will get around these animals often report being nauseous, sick to their stomach, uh, intense headaches, almost like a migraine headache. If you've ever had a migraine, think along those lines. And oh. it is incapacitating for the individual. So is there something to that? Well, we've gotten quite a lot of reports. I can't say for sure, but it is, again, another fact that's interesting that you have to wonder, is this a capability these creatures possess? Yeah, it helps them hunt. Yeah, I wouldn't and, be surprised uh, be either. Capture their prey. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either because I mean it's got. <coughs> excuse me, but that's got to be really heightened because um, you know that's got to be something that not most normal animals have. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the big cats, but I mean these things have been 
you can, you, I mean, you can hunt down a big cat, but these things can try to hunt them down and everything. And all of a sudden they're here one minute and gone the next. <coughs> and that's why I think that they have some kind of heightened, like everything, even more than, you know, your, your regular big cat or brown bear or owl in the woods. It almost seems like well, one they, of the consistent ahead. things that we get from witnesses is how silent they move through the woods. And when they're questioned, they often say they, it's almost like they glad it across the ground or up the hill. And again, that's that mid-tarsal break, that mid-tarsal ridge. They're oh. more adapted at moving through terrain than you and I would be. Right. Plus, you got to remember, they live in the woods. So moving through quietly is something they've adapted as a hunting skill or possibly as a defensive technique. So obviously, if you're a predator, the last thing you want to do when you're going through the woods is making this just tremendous amount of sound. So you're going to develop techniques where you're very quiet and you're adaptive in that terrain. So that's probably one reason, too, when people see these creatures, one of the first things they say is, you know, they, they didn't hear a lot of noise. They might have just seen them and, you know, experienced that, but they just didn't have a lot of noise to them. And again, that's that adaptability to the terrain. So, in your opinion, could you give us, like, a, you know, in your opinion, how, how maybe these things, uh, are they derivatives of us? Or are they, uh, you know, maybe an advanced version of us just still here on, you know, on, on this planet? Well, it's a really good question because with the 1%, and that's not coming back on every DNA hit, but it's been a few of them. And again, it's been registered as inconclusive. But what we are figuring out as we learn more about our species, the tree that we thought was very nice and tight has a lot more branches on it. And those branches, uh, you know, branch out into a lot of different directions. So is this a creature that basically derived at some point in the past and has evolved its own branch and survived and now it's you know branching out with subspecies we have to ask um, so I think yes it is flesh and blood now is there a connection to the lights I'm not sure I'm more questionable on that now than I was 10 years ago because again more people are coming forward and they're feeling more confident to talk about their sightings and what they witnessed. But I do believe there is a connection to us. Now, does that mean that they're all human? No. But is there a connection somewhere on that tree? It is interesting. And again, uh, without having a body, the DNA, but I do believe there may be a connection in the future if something is found. But you do have to ask yourself that question. How related are they? A lot of hunters who have seen them through their rifle scopes would not shoot. And when the researcher asked, why didn't you shoot? One of the most common responses is, it looked human. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. kind of like, you know, maybe if you feel bad, if you've seen like a, like a, you know, this beautiful big great eight, like a, you know, one of the orangutans or something like that and you're just like ah oh, i can't do it man he's that's too human yeah 
And yet, it's, it's funny how that is the response you get back so many times. It looked human. Yeah, so, I get, and it might be just. Be, <clears throat> do you think it's just? I mean, if it's not really attacking you, yeah, it's going to bang on your house and scare your dogs, or scare or eat a chicken. Do you think that they'd be that, um, you know, dangerous to like a, a human being? I mean, I've never heard one of them attacking a human being or tearing them apart. It's almost like maybe they feel the same way where, you know, maybe they recognize us as, you know, somewhere, some ways, you know, kind of like them. Because, I mean, we both, you know, walk with two feet and we got, uh, you know, the hands and the fingers are about the same. And, and the apes don't even have that. Well, it, it, it does, you know, ask the question, has there been, again, conflicts? One thing you've got to remember, too, that's drawing maybe some of these creatures into more territory that was at one time rural. As we push out, we build houses and subdivisions. Well, right. what's the first thing we do when we build a house and subdivision? We plant grass. Okay, once we plant the grass, here come the deer. So... What is one of the biggest prey items for Bigfoot? Deer. And we've had, you know, some hunters reporting they've actually seen or had their deer taken from them, from these creatures. So deer is a prey item for them. So that might be one reason that you get some of these conflicts, and that's why I always say, you know, if you're in that area that they consider their traditional hunting area, and you show up and you're killing the deer or hunting the deer or hunting the game, you're now conflicting with his hunting pattern. And an alpha male, which are the larger males, they're not going to want that. That's their territory. So they see this as you're interfering upon their territory. So this is why you get some of these reports of uh, this aggression toward humans. So I think that has it. And just as a footnote, the Comanches would often speak of these being very aggressive. They called them man-tigers. Hmm. And they were found in the mountains and typically eight to nine feet. I find that interesting as you go through the different tribes of North America. And, you know, they had conflicts with them when they would go into the mountains to hunt and run into these creatures. So, yeah, there's been conflicts with us. Again, based probably on resources, natural resources like you know prey items. So you don't you don't. Think but that does that mean that every one of them is aggressive? No, I think region has a lot to do with it, and also their experiences with humans. So do you think uh, that I um, don't know in certain areas that you'd want to be alone go looking for one of these? Oh heck no! Uh, because again, in some certain areas, that aggression has well, been documented. Super. So. Well, Safety is always know, an issue, too. Does anybody know where they came from or where they, like, were born, just to call it that? I mean, yeah, just some kind of origination point? Yeah, where did they originate from? Do you know? Well, there's that's a lot of theories. Typically, a lot of folks feel that they came over uh, basically from Siberia into uh, Alaska over the land bridge and then migrated down. At least that's the reigning theory. Um, that would explain how they got into North America over the uh, frozen land bridge. But as the land bridge melted, then 
they became their own subspecies, just like you have the one in Australia, you've got the one in North America, and you've got, you know, the, the uh, Yeren, which is in China, and the Yowie in Australia. So you've got all these different variations of the theme, as I like to say, and you've got the different varieties because they were, you know, locked into their landmass in some cases, and they evolved to their environment. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, I see that. Especially since, you know, I mean, their sensors are obviously, you know, honed down to, you know, just like the ultimate um, surviving species and without being any kind of animal or any kind of humanoid. But, um... So do you think that uh, with the technology and everything that will one of these days at least uh, capture one? I'd hate to say, I don't want to say, you know, kill one, but. I think that you won't probably kill one physically, but would you be able to get one on film better? Possibly because one tool that's being used that really is becoming a game changer in so many industries is the drone. Uh, Drones are able to cover way more ground than you and I would be able to physically. With the cameras being mounted on them, you can use anything from LIDAR to, you know, uh, basically thermal. So they can cover a lot more woods and forest and peer down and see down into the forest much more easily than we can. No kidding. So I think it's going to be only a matter of time that sooner or later a drone is going to capture the footage of one of these creatures. And with the cameras improving, uh, of course, being HD, you're going to have a better quality video than you'd say you had uh, years ago with some of the earlier type films and so forth. So, yeah, I think we are going to get someone. And, again, it could be someone doing something totally unrelated that just, happens to be at the right spot at the right time with the right equipment yeah because um i almost think it's going to be you know somebody you know that's like a you know a civilian and when the civilian finds it and everything and it's you know maybe somehow laying there right in front of them is that like um with i don't know if you know about the giants but uh, there's a whole bunch of giants that, you know, people found like in the 30s and 40s and the Smithsonian just, you know, took them over and put them downstairs in the Smithsonian someplace and never to be heard of again. Yeah, the little the skeletons. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah, what I'm afraid skeletons, of. Yeah, skeletons. I've heard even of 13, 14 feet yeah. in skulls that were enormous that were found. So, so you know what I'm talking uh, fortunately, about. Fortunately, what's odd and what I find odd through my research is a lot of these skeletal remains uh, were, you know, misplaced, lost. Uh, some went to the Smithsonian, some went to other museums, and, you know, how do you misplace a 13-foot-tall skeleton? Uh, question yeah. number one. Question number two, where did it go? But yet we have pictures of these. They were documented because of the archaeological sites right. and the archaeological process. So, and there's some objects were put beside them for scale. So you can see the enormity of these uh, skeletal remains. And we have, you know, again, if you go through the biblical, if you go through the historical, uh, there were 
giants talked about in the past, right. people who were eight, nine, ten feet t- tall. So, uh, you know, was it gigantism? We don't really know, but we know that the giants have been there. Uh, there have been skeletal remains found. So, yes, I mean, it's it's not something that's truly hard to believe that you could have individuals who in the past were very tall, very broad-shouldered, uh, every now and then you'll see an individual who's just much larger. You know, think of Andre the Giant, how tall and big a man he was. Right. So, yeah, it's it's quite possible. I mean, it's not out of the theoretical possibility. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> most of those 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 uh, big skeletons and skulls and everything were were found by, or you know, the indigenous people knew that they were there. And, you know, when all of a sudden they, you know, they, you know, a search team comes out, you know, and they talk to the the local indigenous tribe there. They tell them where it's at. They go and look around. They find it. And then when they find it, they report at the Smithsonian Institute. And all of a sudden it's gone. Meanwhile, some places around the, you know, around around the world where they don't have the Smithsonian, they have them kind of like secured in their own museums. Well, a prime example of this is the Nantahani, which were out in the western part of Canada. They were a fierce, huge, tall, giant uh, men who were cannibalistic, and they were considered giants that would attack the local, more peaceful tribes of that region. And then they just vanished. We don't really know what happened to them. Huh. So, yeah, there's all kinds of legends and stories uh, of tribes that, you know, existed within certain regions that, of course, are no longer there, but they're, some of them were fierce, some were more reclusive in their own right, uh, but they all share that tall, giant-type stature type of, you know, uh, characteristic. So, yeah, it, it's, it's not undocumented. It's, you know, throughout different regions of the world. Yeah. And like I said, it's not a stretch to believe that, you know, some of these traps lived into more recent times until finally they faded. But, yeah, it, it's quite possible. Huh. Okay, so, yeah, that's kind of like uh, along the same ways as like a, you know, Sasquatch or a Bigfoot or something like that where, you know, just the history of the whole of, of them is like one thing that they tell us and but if you do research it's another thing right that's correct and you've been doing this for you know obviously a really long time because you seem very uh expertise in this so it, it's i want to thank you for um you know taking your time for us and tonight and um hopefully we'll uh we'll uh be getting with you again you know, if anything really big comes up or, you know. Well, it's been my pleasure. And like I said, there are, there's no end to cryptids yeah. that people have seen from the Dismal Swamp in Virginia to other areas. So, like I said, Bigfoot is the most well-known, one that most people recognize when you say that word. Uh, but certainly it, it's a whole family of creatures and again it goes worldwide but right. there's plenty out there and there's a lot that we still don't really understand that you know we're slowly again through research and again it's a small group really if you look at the big picture that does the research 
Right. But hopefully sooner or later out there, someone will, you know, get that, uh, what I call the million-dollar shot, the smoking gun or the forensic evidence that we yeah. need. It's probably just a matter of time. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's almost like along the lines of UFOs. I mean, yeah, they're, uh, they're spotted all around the world, UFOs and Bigfoots and, you know, cryptids. And, you know, maybe... 95% of them might be false or, or something, but still there's that 5% that's unexplained and it, it could be real. Very much so, yeah. It's, again, not everything is a hoax. Not everyone's lying. Especially if it's uh, around the world. Certainly a lot of yeah. the hunters know what a bear looks like. And, hey, you James. know, these creatures are bipedal, for instance. James, 